tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 67th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on today's episode, we bring you Rainham Hall. This is in New York, and it is a suggestion from Sparkle City Phil, who is host over at the Hateful Dead podcast. And Denise, I first saw this on my radar when Phil was posting a bunch of pictures. He and his wife had gone there to visit. Mm-hmm. And he posted a bunch of pictures up on his wall, and then he brought it over to the Spectacular crew and was showing us everything, and I was like, wow, that looks like a cool place, and he goes, it's haunted. Yay, that's what we like. And I thought, never heard of this Rainham Hall, it might be one of these that isn't as interesting, but we'll go ahead and go for it. Well, as I did the research, this place is very interesting. We got all kinds of fun stories here, including the very first Valentine. The very, very first one? Indeed, at least the first recorded one. I'm not sure if caveman uh, Uku went over to cavewoman blah blah and uh, gave her a valentine. Uku and blah blah. (laughs) Oh my, I'm glad you're a good researcher because your creativity failed you there, sweetheart. (laughs) So maybe one of them had the original first valentine, but this was the first recorded one. Okie doke. Before we get into that, we do want to direct you over to our website, historygoesbump.com. It's got everything you could possibly want to know in regards to the podcast. Our archives are up there. You can sign up for our newsletter there. You can find out where you can listen to the show, how to find us on social media. You can shop at our Emporium, and also you can donate to the show, which you might want to consider doing because we are piling up a little bit of an archive of our Haunted True Crime podcast. We've got three of them in the can now. They include the Cleveland Torso murder, the murder of Isaiah Lebov, who was a lawyer to the mob, and our most recent one is the Manson murders. So for $5 or more a month, you can get all of that bonus material, and we're going to put up one on 9-11 as well, a special for that. So if you want to get that stuff, that's all you got to do. And for just a buck a month, you can be an executive producer of the show and you can put that on your resume because it's the real deal. So if you want to help us with the overhead here, we would greatly appreciate it. Yes, we would. And of course, if you can't give, please share the show. We appreciate that greatly. Denise, if people want to send us any feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We want to welcome Janelle to the Spectacular crew. Welcome, Janelle. And Denise, we also got four five-star reviews since the last podcast. That is fantastic. Yay. Indeed. Our first one comes from Lilypad888, Amazeballs. Heard about HGB from the lineup website and figured I'd give it a try. The fluidity of the segments packed with poignant and compelling content sets this podcast apart from others. The report between the host makes the audience feel a sense of familiarity and like we're just a bunch of friends having a glass of wine and sharing stories and knowledge. The community they've created is positive and equally familiar as well all around amazing. Thanks so much, Lily Pat. Yes, thank you. Appreciate that. And we have Brent Warren, the perfect balance is a person with an interest obsession. Okay, the interest slash obsession. How do those go together? 
<laughs> I mean, interest is, yeah, I find that interesting. Obsession is, I'm going to die without it. I think I have an interest obsession with Disney. Okay, anyway. As a person with an interest obsession with both history and supernatural tales, I have watched and listened to a number of programs that claim to be about both history and hauntings. Alas, most of them have proved unsatisfying, clearly favoring one subject over the other. Happily, History Goes Bump manages to strike the perfect balance. Co-hosts Diane and Denise have a great report, and their genuine interest in the subjects comes through loud and clear. I've spent the last few days binging on the archive shows, and I plan to keep on listening for a long time to come. Thanks so much, Brent. Yes, very much. Thank you. We've been hearing that from a lot of people, and that's how I listen to podcasts, too. When I find one that I like... I just start binge listening. It's the same thing with shows on TV. We've done that where we just sit down and binge watch. It's almost more fun to do that because then you don't have to wait for the next episode. You just, boom, there it is. You might have just answered your question about interest obsession. There was an interest in our podcast, so he listened. And now it's an obsession. And now binge listening becomes the obsession. Ta-da! Done. And is there a seven-star option by Pappas SG? This is definitely the podcast you are looking for, whether you are a history buff, a paranerd, or both. Diana and Denise do their research and have a great wealth of knowledge on each subject they tackle. It's an incredibly engaging listen, and even though I listen to upwards of 30 podcasts a week, I drop everything when a new episode drops. It's also so refreshing to have hosts who are so accessible to their listeners and make you feel more like a friend than a fan. Thanks for all you two do. Still waiting for the show to go daily, Stephen. Okay, well, Diane, it could go <laughs> daily, but something needs to happen for our researcher slash my co-host. <laughs> yeah, let me just say, it's killing me getting these shows out to you guys. We're trying to do two a week now, and I'm trying to do the bonus stuff as rewards for our sponsors. And uh, wow, doing that plus a full-time job, plus my folks just moved here <laughs> trying to help them. Oh my God, it's been crazy. And October's coming. I don't think I'll be sleeping in October, actually. Is sleep overrated or underrated or are you going to be bumping the night? You know what? Sleep is overrated. Who needs <laughs> it anyway? And Denise, hold the phones. We got our first review from the United Kingdom. Our first one from UK? Yes. When we got our extra storage, we also got better statistics. So now I don't just see downloads. I get to see what countries are coming from. And literally the entire world is listening to us. I had no idea. Even the little itty bitty countries. But number two on the list after America is the United Kingdom. So I was like, well, where's the reviews if all these people are listening to us over there? We finally got one. This is from HD48. Tremendously enjoyable, informative, and fun. I almost feel like I should put an accent on when I'm reading this. Please don't. (laughs) (laughs) Found this by putting two of my favorite subjects in search. They put Diana Denise in the search and they got us. What do you know? Whoa. (laughs) We always come kind of hand in hand. Remember that one girl who didn't know who was who for four years of being our friend? (laughs) (laughs) We'll tell that story in a minute. Immediately liked presenter's voices. Very important for me. So, Denise, you are not just beyond annoying to this person. You're perfect. Also, well, thank fa- you for <laughs> helping me with that because I was a bit concerned. Also, the fact they look at other countries' hauntings history. These ladies also are not afraid to give you their own views, opinions at times on matters, and that for me is a real plus. I don't know if I feel that way about Denise's opinions, but hey, factual podcasts need this. Who wants to listen to dry facts when you can listen to feisty information? Thank you so much for that. We appreciate that. And what Denise was mentioning is any time we go somewhere, we're always introduced as Diane and Denise, and literally we been going to events with this lady for probably like three four years and she finally came up to us and she goes you know i hate to say this because i've known you guys for so long but she said you're always together i always hope that one of you will come in without the other so that i'll hear what your name is because she goes i just know you as diane and denise who's who 
Yep. So for forever, she knew that Diane and Denise were coming and she knew which faces would show up, but she wouldn't have been able to come up and say, hey, Denise or hey, Diane to us individually. I think that was funny. All right. Well, thank you for those reviews. We greatly appreciate those. If you haven't given us a review, please think about doing so either over at Stitcher or at iTunes. Denise, are you ready to go to New York and Rainham Hall? I absolutely am. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash history goes bump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. This comes to us from the Sydney Morning Herald. Quote, a tiny alien creature that washed up on the banks of a river in northwestern Russia has locals and experts stumped. At first glance, it looks like something born from the abdominal cavity of an Nostromo crew member to wreak space horror havoc on Sigourney Weaver and the human race. This creature is a four-centimeter oddity that was found in the Leningrad region in the town of Sosnovy Bor by a woman named Tamra as she waded in the shallows of the Kavashi River, according to a local television news report. With what appears to be an elongated skull, shrunken frame, and taloned limb, Tamra's friends thought it was a mutant chicken embryo. But Tamra was not convinced the creature she found and christened Kesha was of such mundane origins. Biologist Yegor Zadariv at the Krasnoyarsk Institute of Biophysics agreed. It seems that this body is neither fish nor fowl. This creature has a mysterious skull, no neck, and wings, he said according to a translation of an interview on Russian TV. Kesha was to be sent to Moscow for further analysis, which is sufficiently vague to conjure images of top-secret underground bunker laboratories, reverse alien probes, and mitochondrial sequencing. Kesha had alien conspiracy theorists dusting off their tinfoil hats. UFO Sighting Daily, whose other top stories are UFO follows the Donald Trump helicopter, tells us Trump will be next president, and City on Mars inside alien skull found in India, is eagerly awaiting the results of further tests. But Tamar's friends and their mutant chicken egg theory is closer to the money for Sosnovia Bor locals, the key word being mutant. The residents of the town, which is in the shadow of the Leningrad nuclear power plant, are naturally suspicious of expert authority. The plant had a history of disastrous industrial accidents and cover-ups, according to a former Russian federal inspectorate for nuclear and radiation safety, Vladimir Kuznetsov. Three people were killed when a cooling circuit unit ruptured the year the planet opened in 1975. Over the last three decades, there have been two major fires, a radiation spill detected six kilometers from the site, and five other major accidents at the plant. If it is a radioactive mutant spawned from a leak at the nuclear plant, that makes Kesha more Blinky the fish than a flesh-eating alien. Now that certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. This Day in History On this day, September 10th, in 1846, Elias Howe patents the sewing machine. Elias was a factory worker who lost his job in the panic of 1837. He moved to Boston where he was able to find work in a machinist shop. Elias liked to tinker and he began using some of the equipment to build a machine that could sew. When he was done with his creation, he had the first lock-stitch sewing machine. It took him eight years to invent it. 
He decided to demonstrate his creation for the public, and they were dazzled by this machine that could do 250 stitches per minute. It did the work of five hand sewers. He patented the machine in Connecticut. Many legal battles ensued as Elias tried to protect his invention from being copied. Other inventors, like Isaac Singer, improved on the mechanisms, but ended up having to pay Elias some of their profits since the original was his to begin with. Elias made over $200 million with his sewing machine, and during the Civil War, he donated some of his money to the Union Army. Rainham Hall has seen much history in its time. The homestead survived the Revolutionary War and occupation by a British regiment. It was part of a spy ring as well. It has survived years of additions being added to the buildings and the changing of hands. Something else has survived from the past as well. It would seem the spirits of the former occupants have decided to stay. Come with us as we explore the history and the hauntings of Rainham Hall. The city of Oyster Bay, and may I just say that's a really cool name, I love it, was first settled by the Mattencock Indians, which were really from the Lenape people, and we've heard about this tribe many, many times up here in the New England area. The first European settlers arrived in 1650. Both the Dutch and English set up camp here, and the boundaries between the two were very fluid. Most people are probably familiar at this point that New York was called New Amsterdam, so the Dutch were the first here, but the English came in as well, and they tried to share. They didn't do very good at it, but... They tried. The area was given the name Oyster Bay because oysters were plentiful in the waters. Many of the Dutch settlers were Quakers. The Townsend family were some of the Quakers who came fleeing religious persecution, and their family would have deep roots in the shipping business here. Oyster Bay received its charter from England in 1667 after the Dutch relinquished control. Within 20 years, all the land still owned by the Indians had been sold. Samuel Townsend was born in 1717. He was 23 years old when he moved from Jericho, New York, to Oyster Bay. He purchased land there in 1740 that would provide him better access to the waterfront. He was building a shipping business with his brother Jacob, and this location would be perfect. He built a four-room frame home initially, which meant the house was built with two rooms on the first floor and two rooms on the second floor, and there was a central chimney. This proved to be too small for him, and so he added four more rooms to the north side of the house. The home was considered to be of the salt box style. That style referred to homes built within a wooden frame and a pitched roof that slopes back further in the back. So basically, the rear roof is longer than the front roof. Salt was kept in boxes like this, thus the name. He dubbed it the Homestead, and it officially became known as the Townsend Homestead. The reason the home became too small was because Samuel married Sarah Stoddard and they ended up having eight children. And as usually happens, not all of those eight children did make it to adulthood. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. 
The shipping business flourished, and by 1765, the Townsend brothers owned four ships and were sailing them to far-off locations like South America, the West Indies, and Europe. The ships exported goods like rum, fabric, and molasses, along with lumber. Samuel also imported goods and decided to set up shop as a merchant from his home. As his business grew, Samuel grew in prominence, and he decided to get involved with politics. Uh Oh, <laughs> of course, back then it was a lot more legit. I mean, these were guys who were still keeping their day jobs, so to say, and then serving for a short period of time. So this is I liked true. our government at this time. Okey-doke. His first government position was as Justice of the Peace for Oyster Bay. As the drumbeat of revolution grew across the colonies, Samuel took part as a member of New York's Provincial Congress, serving from 1774 to 1777. When the Revolutionary War was over, Samuel became a state senator for New York. Samuel's endeavors during the Revolutionary War and his loyal patriotism made life very dangerous for him and his family in New York. The British occupied much of New York for a substantial amount of time. Many people found themselves on prison ships where they would die. It is estimated that 10,000 people from New York died on these ships. The British came to Townsend Homestead and burst open the door. They took a rifle down from the mantel and smashed it, declaring that a rebel had no right to a gun. Samuel was arrested and led away in chains. A neighbor who supported the British crown saw Samuel being led away and he followed. He was good friends with the Townshends despite their political differences, and he paid a large sum of money to the soldiers in order to gain Samuel's freedom. We're not sure how happy he was to have done this after Samuel entered politics, but because of what he had done, he was allowed to stay when the British vacated. The British did occupy the Townsend homestead and used it as a meeting place for Lieutenant Colonel John Graves Simcoe from 1778 to 1779. Simcoe fell in love with Samuel's daughter Sarah and wrote her the first recorded valentine. No one knows if Sarah felt the same way, but she never did marry. Which tends to make me think that there was some heartbreak there for her, and it was a, a beautiful poem that he had written to her, and when they found it among her belongings, it was very creased, meaning it probably been folded and unfolded many times. So I would say that the feelings were mutual, except for that when the war was over, he had to go back to Britain, and apparently he married someone else, didn't take her with him. That was the very first recorded Valentine, because he gave it to her on February 14th. Perfect. Robert Townsend was Samuel's fifth child. Two of his older siblings, Phoebe and Solomon I, died as infants and older brother Samuel Jr. died of fever in 1773. His other older brother, Solomon II, was captain of the Glasgow, which was a ship owned by their Tory neighbor that had helped free their father. And although the ship belonged to a Tory, Solomon was a loyal rebel who had met up with Benjamin Franklin in London. Robert was a loyal patriot as well, which led him to become a spy. George Washington had formed an intelligence ring dubbed the Culper Spy Ring. Robert joined the ring in 1778, and he used his business as a merchant as a cover. Robert's codename was Culper Jr., and he sent messages to Washington as a result of information he gathered while eavesdropping on the British. The messages were encoded with a secret numerical code and sometimes written in invisible ink using a formula developed by John Jay's brother James. Washington used a reagent solution to make the ink visible. You know, I have to kind of giggle because this sounds like what you used to do as kids. <laughs> I know. It's like, where's your secret decoder ring? Yeah. Well, and did you ever write secret messages with lemon juice and then hold them up to the light and it would shine through? I never tried that, but we actually had pens that had quote unquote, invisible ink in them that if you held it up to the light, and I think they even have stuff nowadays that if you paint water over it or something, it'll show up again. 
Right. And so, so yeah, it sounds like. But George isn't that Washington. amazing? This, this took place back in the 1700s. They had that technology. And John Jay was one of the writers of the Federalist Papers. So this wasn't just some Joe Blow. This was the brother of a pretty famous founding father. So we played in good company when we were children. Indeed. And I just think this is so cool. You know, there's that show, I believe it's on AMC Turn. That's about the spy network. And I have only caught a couple episodes of it, so I'm not sure if it covers the Culper spy ring specifically, but um, fascinating stuff. The Culper spy ring's greatest moment came when they alerted Washington to an attack on the French fleet landing in Rhode Island. Robert kept his spy work a secret from his family his entire life. It was not revealed until 1930. Somebody was going through some old documents and figured out lining up the signatures and things, they figured out that Robert was indeed Culper Jr. And the funny thing about the story with the spy ring is talking about their greatest moment. George Washington had gotten really frustrated with the spy ring because it was like he would get the information right after something had happened. So it'd be like, the British are going to attack here. And he's like, thanks. That happened, you know, 12 <laughs> hours ago. So, so, so they weren't a very good spy <laughs> ring. <laughs> well, if you think about it, there was some distance you had to get stuff through and everything. So he finally, he kind of was ticked off and told them all, could you guys get me something that's would give me warning before it happens? Hello. Samuel died in 1790 and his family continued to live at the Townsend Homestead. Phoebe lived in the home with Sarah and Robert. You might be getting confused by some of these children's names because the Townsends used the same names for a couple of the children. There were two Solomons and two Phoebes. The Phoebe that lived a long life caused quite a scandal. She was what we would refer to today as a cougar. Denise, you know a little something about that, don't you? Yeah, you think you're that young, honey. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody told me it's 15 years, not seven and a half. Eight. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. Yeah, we'll see who's keeping up with who when we get older. I tell Denise all the time she's going to be pushing me around in my wheelchair. And I hope she likes wheelies. So anyway, she was what we would refer to today as a cougar, an older woman who marries a young man. When Phoebe was 45, she married Dr. Ebenezer Seeley, who was only 26. (gasps) (laughs) That was the gasps of the people in the town. (laughs) Okay. All one of them? Small town. (laughs) Hey, if I can make multiple gasping noises, we do have a haunting going on on this show. Or, because there's only one of me. So if there's or, multiple... Or dual, dual personalities or something else. Well, that is a possibility. Seeley would later become the owner of the property. In 1851, a grandson named Solomon redesigned the property in the Victorian style, which was popular at the time. He added carpeting, decorative wallpaper, and ornate furnishings. It was at this time that the homestead became known as Raynham Hall because Solomon wanted to project wealth. The name is taken from the Townsend seat in Norfolk, England. And just so people know, Phil took a ton of pictures, as we mentioned earlier, with his wife, and he sent a bunch of them to me. So they're going to be up in the show notes today. You just go over to the blog tab at historygoesbump.com and look under episode 67, and we'll have a whole, I was going to say the S word, load of pictures. sitting up in the show notes. So you can see what the inside of this place looks like today. The house continued to pass down through the family, enduring a legal battle, being sold off for debt, and being bought back by the family again. It was transformed into a tea room for a time in the 1930s and was used by the Oyster Bay Historical and Genealogical Society. A great-granddaughter deeded the home to the Daughters of the American Revolution, who eventually found it too expensive to upkeep the property. The town of Oyster Bay bought the property in 1947, and they restored the building's front area to its original look from the 18th century. The building opened as a museum in 1958 
and it was listed in the National Register of Historic Places in 1974. And obviously, as I mentioned, Phil and his wife have been there, so it is still a museum today that you can go and tour. In 1938, Rayham Hall was under the ownership of Julia Weeks Cole. She was a descendant of Samuel Townsend. She wrote an article for the Glen Cove Record detailing some paranormal experiences that she had heard had taken place here. One story tells of the apparition of a ghost rider on horseback. A woman staying overnight was awakened from her dreams from the sounds of a horse outside her window. When she looked out, she saw the spirit. Some think this was the ghost of a British soldier named Major John Andre who was hung for treason after paying many visits to Raynham Hall. Others think the specter is simply a harbinger of doom. Yeah, so this Major John Andre used to come when the British regiment was here, and he was a spy basically for the British, and he would go back and forth. And on one time when he left with a message, he was caught and they hung him. Don't know if that is him or not, but an interesting thing is Raynham Hall. There is a Raynham Hall over in England as well, and they have ghostly activity. So some people wonder if this is a crossover that... It's just an energy between the two places, even though they're in two different continents and such. So who knows? Oh, yeah, that that's one of the stranger yeah, relationships. I mean, the fact that they found. have the same name and they're both because the Norfolk County seat is where Raynham, where it got its name from. So, I mean, they're the same place almost in two different locations. Which would kind of start to go along your idea of sometimes thinking that maybe ghosts are from parallel universes. Indeed. Or is there some kind of a portal? Who knows? we got all kinds of theories out there. Julia also wrote that the ghost of Robert Townsend has been seen on the stairs, even though they were a newly built part of the home. So nobody's quite sure exactly why he's there. Again, there's been a lot of men in this home, and I'm assuming a lot of them probably look similar to each other. So who knows? It may not necessarily be him. The stairs are actually the most active area of the home. The swishing of petticoats is heard near the base of the stairs. Michael Conlon was a worker at the home, and I believe he came over from Ireland, and he tended to the gardens in the 1860s. His apparition has been seen out in the garden. He wears a coat with brass buttons and sometimes appears without his legs. Not sure if it's just that he doesn't have the energy to bring up his full apparition or what what that's about. He has dark curly hair and a mustache and beard. Staff members also report hearing disembodied footsteps throughout the house. So that's where his legs are. (laughs) When I wrote it, I didn't even think about it that way, but I guess they go together, don't they? His legs are in the house and the rest of him's out in the garden. (laughs) Has anybody seen my legs? Sally Townsend's old room is always chilly and has an oppressive feeling of sadness, perhaps over her loss of her valentine as she died a spinster. The sweet smell of apple and cinnamon are smelled in the kitchen as if reaching back from the past. Of course, this may not be strange considering that apple scent is used in homes all the time. Pipe smoke is smelled as well. The scent comes from the area of the home where Salmi used to sit in front of the wood-burning stove, smoking his pipe. EVPs have been captured by investigators, and we listened to a few of them. On one, we did clearly hear the word Johnson said in a lower tone, so it doesn't sound like it's one of the investigators maybe speaking into the microphone. It it did sound like it was on a lower level of sound wave. I don't know where that name comes from because there were no Johnsons at this home. Another was what I would deem to be creepy as hell because you can distinctly make out screams of someone behind the talking of an investigator. I am going to go ahead and play that right here. Not sure how this is going to come across in this format, a podcast, because usually EVPs just do not do well that way. So here we go. We're going to play it. Turn up the volume and uh, see if you can hear it in your headphones. I will warn you, it is very creepy if you can hear it. And I'm going to go ahead and play that again. 
And one more time for good measure. So what do y'all think? Pretty, pretty weird stuff there. Rainham Hall has been a museum for several decades rather than a residence, but it would seem that someone or something is residing at this location. Are the members of the Townsend family still here in spirit? Is Rainham Hall haunted? That is for you to decide. Fascinating place, Denise. This is a great one. I really enjoyed researching this. It, I think it was so interesting to me because I'd never heard of it before. And there are many places that we've done that with that have been suggestions from our listeners. And I thought, okay, it's going to be another one of these typical old house. <laughs> Not that any of them are boring or anything, but I just didn't think it. And I was like, wow, this has got so much great stuff in it. I know everything from spies to the hunting, first Valentine, the first Valentine oh my gosh. to yeah. wars, you know, just all of it. So this is great. Denise, you know, we haven't been Dananda in quite some time. I think we need to go again. I think we need to go there as well. Uh, Rachel, who is one of our executive producers, sent this suggestion to me quite a while ago. She's probably like, hello, you're finally getting to it. The Maitland Jail. Ooh, I like jails. We have a Maitland here in Florida. Yes, so we do. Maitland, it, Florida. So I, I'm guessing it's rather different. Probably. Just a little bit. So we're going to do that one on the next show. And uh, also, Rachel, her mug is in the mail. Oh, yay, Rachel. I hope you enjoy. Well, actually, Australia's getting ready to start going into summer, right? Yeah, yeah. So their winter's almost done. So, But she might still drink coffee in the morning or tea or... I do. Doesn't yeah. matter if it's 100 degrees out. I need my coffee. All right. Well, we want to thank you guys for joining us for this one. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. Executive producers for this episode have been Levi Drescher, Rachel Cooper, Dan Foytick, Janice Carlson, Patty Hunt, Stephen Pappas, Jade Lewis, Heather Williams, Leanna Sapien, and David and Ann Student. Thank you. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review.